Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. As much as I'd love to talk about topics other than the Russo-Ukrainian war on this program, it's increasingly obvious to me that the, the war is just utterly consequential. It's going to shape the geopolitical landscape for years and decades to come. No country will be unaffected. Most countries will be significantly impacted. And China will be probably more affected than almost any other country besides Russia and Ukraine itself. So what does the global strategic environment look like to Beijing right now? And what could it look like from Beijing's perspective in a post-war scenario? These strike me as some of the most important questions that we need to address as we ponder how Beijing is going to craft its foreign policy in the coming months. So with that in mind, what I hope to do today, along with my two brilliant guests, is to identify what the big unresolved questions are right now as Beijing sees things, the the factors over which Beijing has limited control or influence, but that will have a gigantic impact on the geopolitical and geoeconomic game board as Beijing sees it. If things go one way, Beijing will confront a revitalized NATO that has really closed ranks and which now wields and is more willing to deploy very potent economic weapons, Pax Americana with a new lease on life. Or things could turn out very differently. China, say, as the uncontested hegemon in its regional neighborhood, while the U.S. and its NATO allies continue to fight proxy wars with a very disruptive, revanchist Russia. Will we see a very different world order emerge, one that is bipolar or multipolar? Will the global south back China in some new non-aligned movement? Uh, whatever the case, alea yakta est, as they say, and how things shake out will not only have a huge impact on the macro topography of the geopolitical landscape, but also on the fate of global economic integration, on, on globalization. I've lost count now of the, the number of takes that I've heard that declare this the final nail in the coffin of the era of globalization. I don't know whether that is at this point a foregone conclusion. But anyway, to address these and other big questions, I am delighted to welcome Yun Sun, who is director of the China program and co-director of the East Asia program at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. She's published some outstanding pieces since the outbreak of the war, both through Stimson on their website and on the excellent War on the Rocks website, including one Stimson piece of particular relevance to today's topic titled Ukraine, China's Desired Endgame, because that's exactly what we'll be talking about, China's Desired Endgame. We will link to that and other pieces in the show notes. Yuyin, welcome to Seneca. Thank you for having me, Kaiser. Really a pleasure. It's the first time we've had you on. It's amazing. I can't believe that we haven't had you on before because you're such a name in this in this area. But thanks. I'm, I'm so glad you could make the time. Also joining us on Seneca again is Paul Here. 
Listeners doubtless recall the excellent episode that he did on Taiwan some months back. Paul is a distinguished fellow at the Center for the National Interest, dealing with Chinese and East Asian issues primarily. He served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia from 2007 to 2015. Prior to that, he was a senior analyst at the CIA's Directorate of Intelligence in their China Issue Group. He is the author of Mr. X and the Pacific, George F. Kennan and American Policy in East Asia, which uh, Cornell University Press put out in 2018 and that I just picked up and I'm really excited to read. It finally arrived. Paul writes frequently on China's foreign relations in the national interest. He joins us from his home in Chicago. Paul, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Before we get started, let me note that we are recording on the afternoon of March 23rd, just shy of four weeks since the February 24th invasion. Things changed so fast that I think people really need to know when we were having this conversation, just so that you know they don't think that we're too behind. Uh, let's jump right in and start with some of these major uncertainties that China sees right now. So one, I have to think, is the actual outcome of the war, how long the war drags on, whether it's going to spill over beyond Ukraine, perhaps into Moldova, or God forbid, into an actual NATO member state, uh, whether Putin will achieve his war aims, and if so, under what terms, what a settlement might look like, and so forth. So, Paul, let me start with you. I'd actually love for both of you to weigh in on this, though. What is our best sense right now of the consensus, if any, among Chinese policy elites over the progress of the war, over the status of the war right now? Well, frankly, I don't think their consensus, if there is one, is any more clear than it is here. Hmm. The Chinese probably know less than we do about what's going on on the ground, uh, and it's pretty inconclusive from where, we, from where we stand, I think. Right. The Chinese, they clearly want it to end as soon as possible. I think they're deeply concerned about the potential for escalation and prolongation of this because their control over, uh, well, both their control over what's going to happen and uh, and their interests uh, are both going to erode as this goes on. So I think they're they're in the same guessing game that we are, and there's really it's 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 up in the air. There's a lot of variables that need to be resolved about, uh, particularly from their perspective, uh, where where Putin and Russia, what kind of players they will be as partners for Beijing when this is all over, and that depends on how it ends and when. Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, do you have the same sense that they know less about what's happening on the ground than we do even? Uh, I think the Chinese know one thing for sure, that the Russia is underperforming. Yeah. That they expected Russia to achieve what they call a swift and decisive military victory on the battlefield in a relatively quick manner. But that has not happened. Right. So I think for, for the Chinese, uh, the main takeaway is that the Russian military is not doing as well as uh, probably Putin himself expected. And the ramification now is, uh, well, there are factors that lead to potential escalation. That if Russia indeed decides to use a, uh, a major escalation to, to show its deterrence and to show its desire to end this war and to have a peace deal or ha- peace negotiation, I've heard Chinese analysts say as recent as yesterday morning that, well, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon is not unthinkable, especially if we're considering that Russia is basically bleeding out, that in the Chinese term, Russia is bleeding out. And if Russia wants to stop this bleeding, it might resort to some dramatic measures for it to happen. And that's a major danger. Yeah. I wonder whether that would change China's calculus, though, the moral calculus of this. If China were to, to see Russia use weapons that, that are beyond the pale, if not completely within the realm of the unthinkable, tactical nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, 
I wonder whether the, the moral calculus would, would, would change. Well, I'm not sure whether they're approaching it on a moral basis. Their interests are driving this. So, uh, I mean, I, 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 obviously, there would be an inescapable uh, ethical dimension there that they don't want to have to confront. Uh, and I think that's the one area, perhaps, I was in another conversation with some folks earlier today. If there's one area where, where she might put uh, discernible pressure on Putin, it, it would be there. Beijing does not want Moscow to cross the WMD threshold here. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I think that we might be able to read clues into that already. You know, when they decided to allow Chinese media to start covering civilian casualties and things like that, I think that might have been sort of a subtle signal that there there is some there are there are things that that Beijing considers to be on the pale, and not because, as you say, of of any direct concern with the morality or the ethics of it, but because they understand that that kind of moral opprobrium generates real-world consequences for China. Anyway, I, I, one question I have, I mean, maybe I'm chastened by my own suspicions uh, that our coverage of this has been a little too rosy and, and filtered through our own wishful thinking. I saw yesterday that it was an op-ed by Elliot Cohen, who basically said, you know, we need to, to, to face the fact that actually Ukraine is winning. <laughs> that that by any measure Ukraine is winning this war, and I I thought oh gosh we we cannot I don't mean that 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 seems just terribly sanguine and and maybe not a very realistic I mean we're only four weeks in, and sure maybe by some measures yeah you, well certainly Russia Russia can be underperforming and still quote unquote winning at the same time so I worry I wonder uh, whether Beijing might also be a little too optimistic right now. I wonder whether its basic confidence in an eventual Russian victory has been significantly eroded. I think it depends on how we define victory and what does it look like at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Russia could win this battle and still lose the war, right? By the end of this war, Russia is going to come out as the international pariah Absolutely. with very few partners, with a diminished economy, and with also diminished the international international economic relations or, or, or cooperation. So, so there's no way that Russia is going to come out of this war as a winner. That even if it might be able to carve Ukraine into half and claim Donbas as Russian territory by the end of the day, but it's it's still not a winning scenario for Russia. But the question for China is that well, is that good news or bad news? Right. So, from China's perspective, is it good news or is it bad news? I think the the the, the most well, the better informed the Chinese policy wonks are going to say this is bad news mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because Russia as an international pariah is basically North Korea with a much bigger nuclear arsenal. Yeah, and that's not the most reassuring or stabilizing uh, combination. And if you look at Russia's modus operandi. Russia has been using the strategy of chaos yeah. to punch above its weight, to uh, to basically create leverage where it doesn't have leverage. And if this chaos, well, this strategy of chaos is going to be multiplied because Russia now has even less instruments in its toolbox to achieve its policy agenda, then Russia is going to be much more destabilizing compared to before. And by that token, China is going to be dragged down and to face what it has faced in the in the Ukraine crisis in terms of the difficult choices, how to reconcile irreconcilable positions in China's foreign policy, China's going to have much more to come. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that reminds me of some, uh, something I was talking about with Susan Thornton. The, the conventional wisdom has always been that somehow China was the senior partner in Russia, the junior partner in this, in this entente, in this partnership. 
And I've always hesitated to say that that could be the case. It always seems to me that Russia, because of its really kind of its willingness to be so disruptive, to to leverage you know chaos to sow chaos, it does end up kind of punching above its weight and and perforce leading China around by the nose. I mean, China has to react to Russian initiatives rather than actually you know call the shots and lead the strategic direction. Does that strike you as the case? No, I mean, I, I think it depends on, uh, I mean, there are different variations on the senior and junior partnership relationship, I suppose. Uh, I think Russia has been in terms of material influence, but I think you're right. I, mean, I think that's part of Beijing's dilemma. Uh, yeah. It's being forced to make choices that it doesn't want to make because I, I think Beijing does see Moscow as a junior partner, but although it never enunciates that, certainly not directly uh, to the Russians. But I think it's it's just part of the dilemma that they face. I mean, back to to, to, to Yun's point. I mean, I, I think on balance, I agree that uh, it's it's a uh, it's not good for China for for Russia to be the loser here. I think the irreconcilable preference I think in Beijing is that there be no losers. <laughs> uh, I think you know the ideal outcome for the Chinese in their calculus, I think, would be you know the restoration of a neutral sovereign Ukraine. Uh, but on terms that are, you know, acceptable to Putin. And right. in fact, that, that might well have been acceptable to him and might still be acceptable. Uh, but the problem is, I mean, I think Yuna's right. Russia doesn't come out of this as anything other than a pariah, with the potential caveat being, it depends on whether Putin himself survives this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the, the, the Chinese have to be ambivalent about that. I mean, they've invested a lot in him, but they've invested even more in the relationship. So I, I think there is a possible way that Beijing could pull this out. I mean, even if there is regime change in in Russia, I think the Chinese will be somewhat optimistic that a successor regime would would still be allied with them in pursuit of the principles that Putin and Xi outlined in the in the joint statement on the fourth of February. That's kind of what I was getting at when I was asking Marie Repnikova uh, what what her sense is of the Russian opposition's attitude toward China. And I, I was sort of surprised to, to learn that they're not rabidly anti-Chinese at all. I mean, the, 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 the worst she could say was that Navalny had compared his time in, in a Russian jail to a Chinese labor camp. And that, that was uh, it was funny that he didn't go with a domestic comparison to the, the gulags, but... Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, what do you think? Is China the junior partner here? Actually, are we are we this conventional wisdom wrong on this? Well, in in IR, we have this this phenomenon called the tail wagging the dog, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So between a senior partner and the junior partner is usually the junior partner wagging the senior partner. Ah. This is not something that's unusual and is certainly not unprecedented. In fact, the, when, when the war for, first broke out, I was talking to a Chinese military person about, about, about the war and what, what China knew or what China didn't know. And he cited a very interesting uh, historical fact or historical example here, basically alluding to the fact that Russia is taking revenge. And the example that he raised was back in 1958. Mm-hmm. Khrushchev paid a visit to, to China and the visit went relatively, relatively well. The Chinese at that time was already considering shelling Kuimoi and Mazu. Mm-hmm. Uh, the China did not inform Khrushchev of his plan. Uh. Instead, 
After Khrushchev took took off from 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 China, went back to Moscow, the Chinese immediately started this shelling campaign against Crimea and Mazu, creating the image that a consensus was reached between Chairman Mao and Khrushchev, basically receiving China receiving the green light from Khrushchev to to go ahead. And Khrushchev was put in an impossible position because he couldn't deny; otherwise, he would come out as uh, as being played by China. But it it said that um that this this event, this China playing Khrushchev created a lot of hostility or a lot of unfavorable feeling um, with Khrushchev about China. And this time we're basically seeing the same thing that I don't believe Putin told Xi Jinping the, uh, the, his plan to invade Ukraine. Right, on February Actually, 4th, right. By the beginning of, of February, I don't think Putin even has made up his mind that he was going to invade, launch a full-scale full invasion into Ukraine. But it inevitably puts China in an impossible position because it happened after Putin visited China. Even if there was no consultation, the outside world will perceive that there is consultation. But again, coming back to the junior partner and senior partner, I would say it's actually quite common for the junior partner to play the uh, senior partner in these cases. That's a fantastic insight. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully the historical analogy holds two years after 1958, we had the full Sino-Soviet split by 1960. So maybe there's hope for that. Paul, how capable is China of having any real impact on the course of this war? I'm not talking about mediation, though. I do want to talk about that possibility later. But realistically, is there anything China could supply Russia with or deprive Russia of or anything that China could offer to Ukraine or withhold from Ukraine that might materially alter the course of the war? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation of Chinese providing economic support or uh, help in evading the sanctions and certainly all the... Uh, controversy that was generated last week, that rep- uh, week by the reports that the Chinese were had been asked by the Russians for military aid, uh, and I think both of those could make some difference. I'm, you know, I don't know how to measure the material weight that it would, uh, how much of a difference it would make. But clearly, the Chinese have economic leverage and military power that they could lend to the Russians. But I, I think, and, and uh, I'd be curious what uh, Jung thinks about that. I think they're being very cautious about doing that. The Chinese don't want to invite certainly secondary sanctions, uh, and they don't want to be a party to the actual conflict. Because as Jung said, I think they were caught off guard by the nature and intensity of it. So uh, I think they're, I think Beijing is going to withhold the kinds of material support or economic support they could give in terms of influence diplomatic influence. Clearly, there is, because of the relationship, the personal relationship and the political relationship between Beijing and Moscow, you would expect that she would have some kind of, well, I was going to say moral persuasion, (laughs) but I've already negated the moral part of it. But I think even that can be easily exaggerated. In fact, it occurred to me just the last week or so that it's, it's, in some ways, it's comparable to the level of influence and leverage that Beijing has over Pyongyang. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's more dangerous to attempt to use it. It's 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 there, but it probably doesn't constitute as much as third parties would like it to be. So, again, I, I think it's there, there's influence there, but the incentives for Xi Jinping to use it, I think, are somewhat constrained. Yeah, I, I actually put that same sentiment into a tweet just the other day. I said, you know, look, why would we expect that Beijing would be able to rein in Putin if they haven't been able to rein in? 
Pyongyang. North Korea is completely dependent on China. It's not even like Russia in that in that sense. But yeah, I, I totally I totally get you. And and Paul, you anticipated uh, Yin's piece. If you haven't read it already, she says the exact same thing that there's no ex- reason to expect material support. Chinese weapons would be easy to identify on the battlefield, right? Yeah, since it will be easy to identify, also in terms of the munition, we have to assume that the Chinese munition can actually be used on Russian weapons, that there is that level of interoperability between the Russian weapon system and the Chinese weapon system for the Chinese munition to be actually applied. And then there's issue of deniability. We know chi- we know China's behavior pattern that whenever there is a deniability that there's plausible cause for China to say, we didn't do this, they probably will attempt to, to provide things. But in this case, everything is so easily identifiable. Yeah. So I doubt that the China will put itself in, in that position. However, having said that, I would say that military assistance is different from material support. Okay. Or it does not cover the full scale of the material support. China could still provide things like, well, winter coats or winter tents. We know that in, on the front line, it's still relatively cold. And China has in the past provided such logistical supply to Russia, at least in the war of Chechnya. So that's, I don't, I don't rule out those possibilities. And then there's also the question of what constitutes material support. That if China provides, for example, economic assistance, uh, to Russia that basically are committed after the invasion happened, then yes, that would constitute material support. But if China continues to implement the economic cooperation deals assigned with Russia before February 24th, would that constitute material support? I think that's really a, a big question because we know that they signed 15 economic cooperation agreements on February 4th. So if China is just treating these as normal international trade and say that, well, we're not violating anything because when we sign this, the, the Ukraine invasion didn't even happen. Right. I think the ball will be on the court of the Biden administration to decide, is that material support? And then they would have to, of course, as you point out in your piece, they have to decide, well, what about India and what about the EU and all the deals that they signed before and that they're apparently continuing to honor? So, you know, would they would they then be made sanctions targets? So I think this we can call this another one of the big uncertainties. You know, how much support can Beijing give to Moscow before they actually, you know, end up paying a significant price? I mean, so well, I would I would add that they're they're certainly delivering rhetorical support. Sure. I sure. mean, they, that's, they, they that's... echoed a lot of Russian talking points about the U.S. being partially responsible for this and not wholly responsible for this. And a lot of their their media campaigns are they're borrowing Russian disinformation uh, you know, about the, the U.S. bio labs in Ukraine and such. So, I mean, Maria Retnikova talked to you about that, I think, in part, too. I mean, the... But Yuen has this, I mean, she she does this really elegantly. She says that there's basically three types of support uh, that, that they give. One of them is at the propaganda and rhetoric level. Another is at the diplomatic level. And a third in, in the concrete actions level. Can you unpack that a little bit? This is a great place to introduce this. I wanted to bring it up later, but let's 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 talk about that. Um, that kind of heuristic that you've you've put out. It's great. Yeah, I think for for China, they made... Okay, so the two weeks after the war started, the Chinese were in dismay. They were confused. They were uncertain. They don't know what kind of position they have been put into. And it was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It was was just... I would say, a, a two weeks of chaos in mm. terms of the Chinese internal debate that we observed. But I think after that first two weeks, the Chinese are gradually coming to their senses that by the end of the day, this is not Chinese territory. And China is not a party to the conflict. 
Yeah. But in other days, this might be diplomatically embarrassing to explain. But our material interests are not going to be damaged that significantly by this war. So I think that's where the Chinese decided to well, let's look at our strategy and see what we can do to justify our different positions and put all the genies in one bottle. <laughs> and that's where they divided the they divided their 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 actions or reactions into three categories. In terms of propaganda, we're seeing a very pro-Russia rhetoric. Yeah. That any anti-war, anti-Russia rhetoric is completely removed from the Chinese internet and Chinese cyberspace almost immediately. Mm. And I think that shows the government's sort of moral support of, uh, of Russia, that they're not willing to come out and call Russia out. But then in the second category, in terms of diplomacy, the Chinese position becomes a little bit more nuanced. That is actually trying to project an image of neutrality. And of course, we in the West don't see that as neutral because if you are neutral, you will have to acknowledge the fact that Russia did invade Ukraine. And that's just plain as that. And the Chinese right. are refusing to say it. But on the other hand, the Chinese position is we're not opposing Russia, but we're also not abandoning Ukraine. <laughs> so between these two impossible positions, I think the Chinese diplomats are trying to charter a balancing course. And then last but not least, in the third category, which is concrete actions, I see that China has literally provided very little, mm -hmm. close to nothing, to Russia in terms of this war. And the Chinese do have a talking point that we have provided $2 million worth of humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, which is really small if yeah, you compare to the scale yeah. of the international aid. But at least the Chinese could say that, well, look, we have materially supported Ukraine in this war, and we have not materially supported Russia in this war. So I think those are the three positions the Chinese are trying to project. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think we are all in large agreement that China has picked a side and that that side is China, right? <laughs> I, I've made that joke before. <laughs> and your piece ends up with exactly the same thing. Nothing China will do will actually run counter to Chinese interests as the party leadership understands those interests to be. We, I think we also broadly agree that as different analysts have pointed out, this isn't really about Russia at all. I mean, they may share a worldview with Russia, and that worldview is dominated by how they think about the United States, of course, its role. Common strategic goals are also all about the United States. Uh, at an emotional level, this is also the case. This is all about America, whether we're talking about ordinary netizens, whether we're talking about policy elites, whether we're talking about top decision makers. This is you know, all about the United States. But, but to get back to these uncertainties that we we're trying to enumerate, for Americans at least, there are big uncertainties over the upcoming midterm elections. That, that, look, that's just in November uh, and at the same time that the, the, the 20th Party Congress is going to be taking place. And in just two short years, we're going to have a presidential election. Are these, Paul Oscu, are these also uncertainties in the minds of Chinese policymakers, or have they already concluded that America will be as hostile to China in January 2025 as it is today, irrespective of electoral outcomes? Uh, I think probably the latter. Uh, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the trend lines in terms of U.S. politics and the bipartisan consensus about the nature of the challenge from China has been pretty apparent, and the Chinese have followed that pretty closely. I think the Chinese... I'm not sure how they're calculating this with its specificity internally, but I think they have every reason to expect that the posture they've adopted in the Ukraine crisis is only going to reinforce bipartisan American perceptions uh, of China, siding with the autocrats against the U.S. agenda. 
and, and re its refusal to break with Moscow and to continue to, well, to echo Moscow's talking points that are blaming the United States for this. I think it's, I don't think it's a variable that much in Chinese thinking anymore to address your question, because I think that they expect, and in fact, I expect that uh, this is only going to reinforce the kind of, well, for want of a better term, the anti-China consensus that is one of the factors of electoral politics here. Yeah. How depressing. God damn it. <laughs> Yin, do you agree with that? Uh, well, I, I agree with that. And I think that very much plays into how China approaches this war, right? I think the, the outside world, especially including the United States, that has had this expectation that China will have to pick the right side. Will have to side with, well, pick the right side of history, basically, that that Russia has committed this crime, this invasion, this aggression. So China at least needs to come out with a with with a correct position. I think that's that's what the U.S. has uh, has expected out of China. But the Chinese question is: so we help you take care of Russia, and we're the next on your list, right? Right. <laughs> what was that? So, you guys all saw that tweet from I can't remember who it was from um, media official. Uh, I can't. It was. It was. It said it almost exactly that. So you want me to help you beat up my friend? So that you'll be in good shape to beat me up later, or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something something to that to that effect. And things that that really resonates among the Chinese policy policy wonks, which is that well, there's no incentive for China to help or to 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 target to target Russia other than international justice, as we as we put it, or other other than it is rising to do. But for for the Chinese, when they look at their most pressing national security challenge. It is still the United States before the war, during the war, and after the war. So what it means is helping U.S. on Russia, or let's not say helping U.S. on Russia, just say that China abandoning Russia is not going to eliminate or even even mitigate China's primary national security threat, which is which is U.S. And arguably, it will leave China at a weaker place with less of a partner to uh, to counter the United States. So I think that, like Paul said, China is uh, counting on its own national interest, is making its own decisions, and it's a selfish decision, and it's a selfish selfish position. Well, then I yeah. think, that, I mean, there's, there's, there's three reasons why the Chinese, in my view, are, are not jettisoning Putin for that reason. I mean, as, as Yun said, you know, we've asked the Chinese to do the right thing and denounce this, you know, unprovoked and horrific and uh, unjustifiable attack. And the, and the Chinese, I think, to a certain extent, do agree that it was unprovoked and unjustifiable, but they still they nonetheless agree with some of the the drivers that led Putin to that point. From their perspective, we're asking them to break with their longstanding ally and join a U.S.-led anti-Russia coalition, and that would that that would compromise everything they've invested in that relationship, and in fact, it would compromise their commitment to the principles in the four February joint statement. Uh, which I think they correctly calculated, even a successor Russian government or any Russian government is going to continue to agree with. Secondly, you're asking me to join a, a U.S. that has declared itself as as the strategic competitor and rival to, to China. I mean, as Yun said, uh, the Chinese don't see any positive benefit that will accrue to them, certainly in terms of an alleviation of the U.S. characterization of China as a fundamental strategic challenge to the United States. They don't see us offering any concessions on Taiwan or any of the other outstanding issues in the relationship. And the third element is for the Chinese to side with us against Moscow at the, on this issue would be to absolve or exonerate the United States of what Beijing agrees with, with Russia is the U.S. 
accountability for this crisis in the form of NATO expansion and all of the other things that contributed, in part at least, to the Russian decision. The Chinese are not going to let us off the hook uh, by agreeing with uh, taking our moral position against what they see as in their strategic interests. Yeah, absolutely. So you said in the in your second point that the United States has yet to offer anything that like in a, a satisfactory inducement. Is there, in your mind, anything that China could dream up that the United States could offer by way of an inducement that would get China to at least sort of take a more truly neutral uh, rather than pro-Russian neutral position in this? Well, I mean, China has a long wish list. I mean, Taiwan and all kinds of the pressure that they confront from the United States on the whole range of bilateral and multilateral issues. But Washington is not interested in doing favors for the Chinese at this juncture because there are strategic rationales behind the issues we raise with the Chinese. That's why I think there's kind of a deadlock there. Yeah, I mean, in the American uh, estimation, China isn't going to make a difference in the outcome of this war. And it's not like the United States needs to make significant concessions. It's not like, okay, Huawei, green light, uh, we're going to turn back on the semiconductor pipeline and you have them all you want. Or, or, you know, uh, okay, we'll drop the tariffs and then, you know, give you a free hand in in your neighborhood. No, of course, none of that's going to happen. So. Yin, you you actually let's get one other factor that, that we brought up was um, and this is another sort of uncertainty is China's domestic situation right now. Um, China, of course, we're going into the twentieth Party Congress. There was a very ambitious set of of, of fundamental reforms that China wanted to make that Xi Jinping wanted to make under the banner of common prosperity uh, that included you know really putting. China into an altogether new footing, its political economy into a new footing that would be sort of for a post-carbon world. And none of that looks like it's going to happen now. He's had to backtrack considerably. You argue that China won't abandon Russia and that part of the reason why it won't shift its position is because of domestic considerations. What did you mean by that? Uh, is it just the, the that he would look bad by by you know going back on his word after the February 4th Olympic statement? It is sad, but it's more than that. So what we look at um, in terms of the policy debate is that we have seen since the beginning of the invasion is it has been quite fierce because there are very vocal voice from within the party saying that while our Russia policy is problematic and our relationship with Russia is taking a toll on our national interest and it's actually costing us more than what we get out of Russia. So this type of voice is, is not uncommon. We know that it, it existed even before the uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. In fact, the funny thing is, if you ask the Chinese Russia specialist, their view of Russia is over is across the board extremely negative. They see Russia as this destructive power, manipulative, exploitative. That China has lost lost four million square kilometers of territory to Russia historically. So I think this debate really reflects a deeply embedded criticism and suspicion about Russia and skepticism about China's current alignment choices with uh, basically to align with Russia. So it really puts Xi Jinping in a very difficult spot because we know that this relationship, of course, is brought together by the shared common threat perception about, about the United States. But Xi Jinping's Russia complex also plays a, a big role, basically the mm. leadership factor, that he single-handedly believes that well, China and Russia should be aligned together. And Putin is a great leader, is, uh, is a great leader that he wishes that he is a peer too. So 
if China decides to abandon Russia, abandon quote quote, and changes its current trajectory on its Russia policy, it will inevitably raise the one question that maybe Xi Jinping was wrong to put China in that place at the first place.、Uh-huh. That then it it will be a basically a living validation that Xi Jinping made a mistake. That's why we're correcting our course, right? Right. So correcting. Course correction in China always means a mistake had already been made, and that mistake inevitably will put will point directly to Xi Jinping's wisdom and his foreign policy choice. And given the upcoming Twentieth Party's Congress, and we know that his、um, Xi Jinping's desire to ink his third term is not without criticism or opposition from within the party, especially among the elites. So I think even just for that purpose, Xi Jinping is not going to allow. For an abandonment of Russia to happen, because otherwise it would be him acknowledging, "Well, I was wrong at the first place." Yeah, especially when he's got to reconsider his、uh, zero COVID policy as well.、Uh, you know, we're seeing this big spike, talk of full lockdowns and enormous conurbations like Shanghai. So we've now so far identified some big uncertainties. So the course of the war itself. The impact on China of of sanctions or the possibility of th- that impact,、uh, domestic considerations both in China and and less so vis a vis the United States because those are no longer uncertainties as we've established.、Uh, so, what are the different scenarios that Beijing imagines? I mean, can we spell those out? I mean, maybe one of them is Pax Americana, the extended director's cut.、Uh, one one of them maybe <laughs> is is the law of the jungle. You know, where we see this. Disruptive and revanchist Russia, like I described, you know, going at it in proxy with or or even directly with、uh, NATO allies.、Um, I don't know how we should label these different scenarios, but let's let's talk through some of the more plausible ones.、Uh, Paul, you know, you you've thought an awful lot. You have a, with all of your your time in government,、uh, you have that good strategic mind, and you guys do a lot of this scenario planning thing. So, what are, what are some of the scenarios you you envision? And maybe we can think about which ones are optimal when it comes to Beijing's perspective, and and what can they do to n- nudge us in that direction. Well, I, I I think they certainly include the two that you mentioned, and I'm trying I'm thinking out I'm trying to figure out which one of those would be less attractive to the Chinese. Probably the law of the jungle. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, but a re- but a revived Pax Americana doesn't really play into their interests and their view very much as well. No, I think、indeed. that's one of their biggest fears. They've certainly been surprised, as a lot of the rest of the world has, at the success with which、uh, Washington has mobilized the coalition of NATO and and more broadly、uh, against Putin's action in Ukraine.、Uh, and the Chinese are kind of you know annoyed and intimidated by that.、Uh, my guess is, though, I mean, it is one of their worst case scenarios. But my guess is that they're calculating that that's probably not sustainable. And of course, that depends on when and how the the,、uh, the crisis is resolved. If it's resolved in a in a kind of a draw, which again is their preference, then all the other drivers that they have perceived of the gradual diminution of, of U.S. power and influence globally maybe get back on track. And、yeah. I and I think that's probably their preferred kind of midstream scenario. I mean, whether it's viable or not、uh, remains to be seen. But I think that.、Uh, The Chinese would like to see, not only but partly because of the reaffirmation of their principles, well, the, the restoration of a sovereign, neutral Ukraine, because that would at least bring Chinese principles back into、uh, some some level of compliance with reality. 
But I think they also want to see Russia survive this as still a credible power in a poll that they can use as a partner in the multipolar world. Because I don't think we can emphasize this enough. They still are firmly committed to the principles uh, of the Sino-Russian joint statement. And and, uh, I think that that's the scenario that they uh, would prefer. I'm not sure that they feel that they're in a position to to bring it into being just yet because the variables are so uncertain. Uh, hmm. but, I, but I think that's where they would like it to go. Yeah, yeah. So Yin, you have written directly about this, uh, what to Beijing would represent the optimal outcome. So can you tell the listeners what, what that looks like to you? What's the optimal outcome? And then let's talk a little bit about other scenarios. I think for Beijing, the desire to end the game is not situational, but rather relational. What do you mean by that? What I mean is, it's not about whether the war is going to end tomorrow morning or in two weeks, but what role China plays in that in, in that scenario, and also what kind of relationship China has with the parties involved. I think gradually the Chinese policy community is converging into one consensus, which is, well, this could be an opportunity. Hmm. And by not picking a side, China is opening up the doors to a lot of agency, to hmm. a lot of power. Because the perception is, well, if we don't pick a side, then every side will have to come to us for our for our support and for our cooperation, right? And that by itself is is power. And I, I do see that China is trying to use this opportunity, for example, to uh, to more cater to Europe's demand, for example, for strategic autonomy. And the Chinese understand very clearly that this this coalition, this unprecedented consensus. Uh, that has been that has emerged within NATO is is on Russia, but it's not yet on China. Hmm. So China is refusing the narrative that bundles China and Russia together and basically form present China and Russia as axis of evil vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Instead, China is actively reaching out to Europe in order to build their own alignment, their own agency with uh, with European countries. Which, in the Chinese view, they want to see a an, a more independent Europe emerging from this crisis. So, therefore, I think uh, the um, information such as Germany allocating two percent of its national budget towards a uh, towards national defense is not necessarily bad news for China because it does suggest that Europe is developing its own internal strengths and its uh, its uh, uh, strategic autonomy. I think the Chinese would like to see the United States divided. By the end of this war, not internally but externally, between the European theater and and the Indo-Pacific theater, hmm. that Russia, as long as Russia continues to exist, and we do believe that Russia, being Russia, will continue to exist regardless of who is leading it, Russia will become a bigger strategic threat for NATO and for for Europe. It also means that the U.S. will have to allocate more attention and resources to Europe. So the focus on Indo-Pacific will inevitably be divided. And I think that's a desirable um, situation for, for China as well. So basically, this is to say that I think the Chinese are perceiving this as an opportunity and perceive there are agencies to be exploited and the relationships to be built or to be strengthened and also diversions to be exploited. So let's call this one the West divided, the pivot delayed. Yeah. That's a good way. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right about the opportunity. I don't think, it, you know, for the first couple of weeks, they saw it as much of an opportunity. They saw it no. as a terrible dilemma. And to a certain extent, it still is. But I think, I think Yuna is right. They're, 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 they're now calibrating, you know, they're increasingly rhetorical, nonetheless, uh, albeit subtle, uh, subtle 
uh, distancing from from Moscow, you know, with the language they've used to say, yes, yes, uh, sovereignty is being violated here. This needs to end as soon as possible. I, and their their diplomacy with the Europeans is part of an effort to be as helpful as they can. I would just add that they're not limiting it to Europe. I just noticed overnight on Twitter, the Chinese foreign ministry diplomats who were just full of all of the initiatives that they're involved with uh, in Africa, in the Middle East, with Pakistan. And I think that they've noted there that the, you know, the international coalition and the, and the support for sanctions against Russia is not unanimous. Right. Uh, there's some skepticism among the BRICS, among other countries that the Chinese also see as part of this opportunity that uh, that Yun was describing. Because it's not just Beijing and Moscow that kind of subscribe to the four February principles. There's a lot of other folks in the global south uh, that share similar concerns about the implications for them of a Pax Americana. And Paul, you have anticipated exactly where I was going next with this, a third scenario or maybe a fourth scenario that we could call... Bandung too, uh, where, where yeah, Beijing sort of emerges as uh, the de facto leader of a new non-aligned movement, and we see Wang Yi right now traveling in Africa. Even as we record, the subtext is that there are a lot of people reading into this not incorrectly. I think I, it, it, that it is, you know, Beijing wants to leverage the fact that a lot of these countries are going to feel the pinch of of sanctions on Russia, oil and gas, also grain, you know, grain not just from Russia but also from Ukraine. I think I, I saw a statistic somewhere about Egypt's grain imports from com- combined between Ukraine and, and Russia are an enormous percent. I mean, it's 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 you know well over 50% if I recall correctly. Uh there's also the sort of racial dynamic that many in the global south see at work. The very different responses to a war in Europe among Europeans, among white people, compared to you know equally destructive wars, maybe equally destructive in the in the global south that have elicited just none of that kind of sympathy or that kind of a response. Um, there's this these mocking maps that that you've seen saying this is the so-called international community, and it's a you know global map of just Western European countries, Japan and and the United States, North America, right. Uh, it leaves a huge amount that is not part of the global community, but geographically and by population is enormous. What do you see China trying to do here? I mean, is this is this part of a strategic opportunity? I think so. It, it, it's pretty clearly one. Um, I, have, I haven't seen that talked about much. Uh, the, the best place I've seen it written about is by Kobus von Staden uh, of the China in Africa Project. Uh, he's one of the co-hosts of one of our sister podcasts. They did a great newsletter about this. Uh, it was really eye-opening to me. Yin, what do you think of this? Do you think this is something they're considering? Yeah, I was actually talking to uh, to Eric and Kobus this morning, and we were talking about how China is trying to mobilize its uh, diplomacy with OIC as we speak to uh, to rally support for China's position on Ukraine, basically projecting China as a neutral third party, trying to play this balancing diplomacy and trying to project an image of international justice and what is an acceptable way out of this uh, out of this, this this predicament. I think that's definitely what the Chinese are trying to achieve. However, I would also caution the world today is not the world of nineteen fifty anymore. Right. The, the 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 complex interdependence meaning that the global south Yes, they would like to probably uh, charter their own, co- own own course, but it's also true that with uh, with COVID and with a global economic recession, I think the global South, their collective or their individual collective bargaining power has also become more constrained. Hmm. 
I think the, the, the impact of that is, uh, well, the, well, if we look at Africa, for example, Africa still largely rely on Western aid and Western humanitarian assistance instead of the Chinese aid, because the Chinese aid is, uh, has, has, has been more in the form of infrastructure loans. So I would say that the Western countries still have vast influence over the decision makings in, uh, in the capitals of the developing countries. And yeah. probably as a result of COVID, uh, it, it has exacerbated rather than alleviated. So in this sense, I, I think, yes, the Chinese are trying to charter their independent course and trying to break away from this binary black or white with, or Russia, with Russia or against Russia kind of, uh, kind of narrative. And they probably will have some success because a lot of countries are also not comfortable with this. Look at Saudi Arabia. Saudi, Saudi Arabia is considering RMB transa- as a transaction currency right. for the oil trade with China. That also says a lot. It really does. I, I think you're right about that. But there's one other caveat, though, that, that, that case takes us back to the centrality of Europe here. I think the Chinese are clearly trying to mobilize the global south with this image they're creating for themselves. But given the particular catalyst of this crisis, uh, they don't they they can't do that at the risk of alienating Europe. So they have, they have a multi uh, layered game to play here. Indeed, they, they want to keep uh, well, keep Europe on their side or at least not drift too far away from Europe's preferences because they're, uh, the EU is that much more important to, uh, to Beijing. Can I just add one point on, on Europe? Because I, I, I was in Europe earlier this, uh, this month, best first trip after COVID. Um, so <laughs> I, I just want to say that, of course, everywhere we, everywhere I was, people wanted to talk about China and Ukraine and where China, where China really sits. And one thing that I realized that Europe is not just one Europe. There are different voices within Europe as well. Hmm. I think the countries in East Europe that used to be uh, members of the Soviet bloc, they feel much more strongly and much more emotional about what happened to, to Ukraine. Not that the Western, Western European countries do not care, but I think the, the calculation or the different factors within the calculus is slightly different, especially coming to China. We're seeing that, for example, Czech, Czech Republic and countries like like Czech and Poland, are much more vocal. And also the Baltic states, remember Lithuania and the yeah. most recent Taiwan drama. I think these former Soviet bloc nations are much more likely to assert a position that is uh, not anti-China, but really calls China out. Yeah. But in comparison, Western European countries have a much more complex calculus in terms of their economic interests with China and their political considerations. So I feel that when we talk about Europe, there are different voices within Europe we need to think about. And most importantly, Europe does not share the American agenda in terms of global supremacy. And that is a fundamental difference between Europe's policy towards China and U.S. policy towards China. That in in Europe's view, the, the problem between U.S. and China is structural, right? It's about status quo power, revisionist power, that the power transition, how that's going to play out. But Europe doesn't have a fight. Europe is not competing with China for, for supremacy. So therefore, China represents something different for Europe. And most importantly, a huge market and a great economic potential. So human rights and ideology, of course, it still plays a big role in, in Europe's value diplomacy. But I wouldn't call them the, the overarching factor or the most important factor in Europe's consideration about China. Thank you. What about India? Where does India sit in this? Because, you know, I mean, we hear an awful lot about uh, people really kind of 
tearing their hair out over what China's role is. Uh, India has also sort of professed neutrality. Their largest supplier of arms is, of course, Russia, but they are also a member of the Quad, have been drawn more and more into uh, security arrangements with the United States, especially since George W. Bush's uh, nuclear deal with India. What's going on with India's calculation vis-a-vis China? I mean, I think the Chinese are taking some comfort in the fact that India has been ambivalent about how to respond publicly to the uh, to the action in Ukraine as well, because of the longstanding Indian relationship with Russia. Uh, now, the Chinese, there are limits on how much satisfaction that gives them, because the Indians, as you say, are members of the Quad and are distancing themselves. They're a strategic competitor, and there's a lot of strategic mistrust there. But I think on balance, the Chinese perspective is to just quietly take whatever satisfaction they can out of the fact that as a representative from the Chinese perspective of the global South, that there's, there's, there's at least at least the U. At least India is not aligning itself with the United States, and they're closer to to Washington. And, and that I think that plays into Beijing's perception that there's mileage there that can be had. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's the India question is really interesting one here because uh, we have seen the the basically the India China border dispute flaring up in the in the past couple of years. India joining Quad, India becoming indispensable partner of the United States in the in, in the Indo Pacific strategy, become a a, a a sheer security net security provider in the in the Indian Ocean. But when China looks at India's neutrality or ambiguity in this Ukraine crisis, I think the Chinese cannot help but feel that this is such a blessing. This yeah. is such a, a heavy pushback to the American agenda that count India as a as a member in the U.S. camp, and there's also this this very interesting observation that if you if you look at the triangle among Russia, China, and India, it's arguable that Russia actually maintains a closer alignment with with India rather than with China. India's economic potential, of course, is limited, but in terms of the arms sales. India is able to get from Russia weapon systems that Russia is unwilling to provide to the Chinese. Hmm. So what we're looking at is that, yes, Russia and China are aligning on a global level. But on the regional level, Russia also has a lot of concerns about China's regional dominance. And Russia aligns its position more closely with India in order to check and counterbalance China's regional dominance. And that's what we have. That's why that. Russia keeps supplying weapon systems to countries, including India and Vietnam. Both are having well territorial or maritime disputes with China, and that's also why we see the Chinese squeaking about every single time that Russia should not be doing this, but Russia does. It's it's a reflection of the misalignment between China and Russia more than anything else. What do you think drives this idea, this expectation that we're seeing more and more that China either would want to or actually would be capable of playing the role of mediator in this? You both probably saw this piece in the New York Times by Stephen Lee Meyer and Chris Buckley. Uh, What do you think this comes from? Because it strikes me as not very plausible, frankly. Well, I think think it's driven by, you know, the preference uh, that Beijing would distance itself from Moscow long enough uh, to oblige Putin to come to the negotiating table. But I think, you know, we, we talked about the constraints on on that happening. Uh, and I think that, you know, people have blurred the distinction. A lot of commentators have blurred the distinction between China being a mediator and China being, as it refers to itself, as playing whatever helpful role it can. Uh, I think by <laughs> by, you know, 
rhetorically distancing itself and reaffirming its principles and talking about the need for the two sides to come together and negotiate. Uh, that's as far as they're going to go in terms of mediating. I don't think the Chinese want to own solution to this problem right. as much as perhaps we would like them to. Uh, and the Europeans will welcome whatever role they can play. Uh, but I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that an actual central mediating role for the Chinese is in the cards here. No, no, indeed. Yin, did you have thoughts on this? There's a fundamental difference, like Paul pointed out. There's a, there's a fundamental difference between mediation and facilitation. Mm. For everything that China has done in terms of conflict resolution and conflict mediation, they actually just played a facilitation role. Say, for example, they convened and hosted six-party talks about right. the um, about North Korea nuclear issue, and they also convened and hosted some of the peace dialogues between uh, the former Ghani government of Afghanistan and the Afghan Taliban. They also did the same thing in Burma. But in every single case, China does not provide a solution. <laughs> China only facilitates the two sides to come together and talk. And in some cases, like in South, in, in North Korea case, China even played the role to make sure that North Korea is going to show up in the negotiation. <laughs> but coming to the substantive solution, China refrains from making proposals. They refrain from being the guarantor of whatever, whatever deal is reached because they know that being the guarantor actually in, actually requires a lot of uh, a lot of technical details, like, for example, ceasefire monitoring. And I think the Chinese also refrain from asserting positions as for what compromises should be should be made by the parties to the conflict, because it inevitably will put stress on China's relationship with that party. So based on what China has done in terms of conflict mediation, I would say that, yeah, they probably will facilitate dialogue. And if the Russians and Ukrainians are willing, I think the Chinese would even be happy to host the dialogue in Beijing. But coming to a conflict mediation role, meaning that coming to a substantive issue of what the peace deal should look like, I'm almost 100% sure that China is not going to get involved. I, I think two of the other constraints are, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine Kiev and Moscow simultaneously viewing Beijing as a neutral player. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, the Chinese have, uh, I mean, part of the consensus they've reached is that we're not a party. We're, we're not a European power. I think it's hard to imagine the Chinese seeing that it's appropriate for them to be a mediator of something on the other side of the globe. Right, right, right. Can I just add one thing? Of course. I think here's here's something interesting. Does China need to be neutral to be to be objective? Can you explain that distinction? So, because uh, while China is biased to begin with, there's a strong pro-Russia bias. We know that for sure. But coming to the, the consequence of the war, I mean, those impact on China is going to be objective. My argument is that China does not have to be neutral in order to have an objective assessment of its national interest. And that's for what China's position should be. So in this case, I don't think neutrality is definitely required for China to be a to be to be a facilitator or mediator as China would like to self self-proclaim. But I do think that how Europe perceives it is going to be is going to be key because if you if Europe perceives China to be this uh, biased player and in the negotiation is going to favor Russia, then China's goal or China's role will be significantly limited. But if on the other hand Europe thinks about China is going to play a positive role, making a positive contribution, it may not be as significant as we would like it for for it to be. But still, in the end, it's a it's a it's a sheer plus. 
I think in that case, China can still、uh, can still play a role, and the neutrality is not the deal breaker here. I think that's a fair point. I mean, I would just specify that、uh, I think you're right about Europe, but I mean, I, I would defer pretty much largely to Ukraine itself. Ukraine has to be comfortable、yes. with Beijing playing a mediating role, or it's not going to work. Right. And I'll just add to that. So far, it is Ukraine that has 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 sought Beijing's mediation or sought、mm. Beijing's assistance in ending this war. Russia has not, which is I think the、mm. other much more uncertain factor. Because if Russia does not ask for China's mediation, then China is not going to insert itself into in、uh, into the middle of the conflict.、Uh, Andrei、uh, Yermak from Zelensky's office had a press conference just the other day. Where he said that China should play a more noticeable role in bringing this war to an end and in building up a new global security system. Then he、uh, he's quoted in Newsweek as saying, "As President Zelensky has repeatedly said, we expect dialogue between President Zelensky and President Xi to take place very soon." I haven't heard anything from the Chinese side on this,、uh, not no, not not at all.、Uh, but、uh, I would be surprised if they would go public with something like that、uh, to, and set up expectations. I want to just、uh, wrap up here with、uh, a, a question to Paul. I want to switch gears and, and talk about. As I mentioned, I started reading your your book. It's it's fascinating. I can't wait to talk into it. Unfortunately, I have to read another one first for a, a podcast recording next week. But then you're next,、um, and it, it's about George Kennan and Asia, which isn't a part of the world that we immediately associate Kennan with. Although when you think about it, so many of the Cold War conflicts between Russia and Uh, and 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 the United States were in Asia, and so much of it was about Asia. But let me let me ask you this: with such a deep understanding of the man who was perhaps the greatest grand strategist of the 20th century, what would Cannon do? What would he say were he alive today in this situation, looking at China in, in the Russo-Ukrainian war? Well, I mean, looking at China or looking at the Ukraine situation writ large. Let's let's do both. I mean, let's 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 start with the the macro, the the, the situation well, writ the, large.、Uh, well, I mean, as you'll find out as you work your way through the book, <laughs>、uh, Kennan.、Uh, one one of the things I faulted Kennan for was that he largely believed for most of his life that China was strategically inconsequential,、mm-hmm. uh, and that we could、mm-hmm. afford to ignore it. Only late in his life did he become to realize that it was something that needed to be reckoned with. And I think he would have, with regard to China, I think he would have supported elements of what would have been described by the Chinese as containment uh, uh, of China. Right.、Uh, but I, but I think actually the in this particular case,、uh, my guess is I I can try to channel him, but I think Kennan would actually be somewhat in agreement with Beijing、uh, about this crisis, because as many people have noted over the past several、uh, weeks and even months. Kennan warned against the consequences of NATO expansion, and I think there's、uh, there's there's a huge debate about this, and there's different ways to interpret what he anticipated or what he meant. But my own view is that the antagonizing of Moscow and the、uh, you know、uh, of, uh, the fueling of nationalistic and militaristic responses by the Russian government is what he predicted would happen if we extended NATO increasingly to the east. And you know, I, I think Ukraine wasn't on the on the table as a member. Well, it was it was contemplated certainly earlier on,、mm-hmm. uh, but w- what he would be doing today is just reaffirm. Well, he, I, he probably would have been saying, "I told you so. This was going to happen." Uh, uh, you know that some something needed to have been done, and in fact, you know, I, I, I don't know. We can't turn back the clock, but I think he would be making the case. In fact, he would be making a case comparable to what the Chinese have been making, 
is that some attention must be given to quote unquote legitimate security interests of the Russians. And, you know, there's an intensive debate about this as well, because it's not as if Ukraine posed a, you know, an existential threat to, uh, to Moscow, certainly since it denuclearized 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I think he would be reaffirming the need, if, if there's going to be any kind of a stable resolution to this issue, it needs to include, and I'm kind of reverting to my grad school European diplomacy, diplomatic history days, some attention to a broader security mechanism in Europe that does not exclude or antagonize or target Moscow. And mm. that's what was apparently, I mean, it was on the table uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, partly in the form of consideration of even including Russia as a member of NATO. But there was never really any serious consideration of that. What would Kennan do? Uh, he would reiterate, you know, the, the principles that he announced 25 years ago that should be driving a broader approach to a longer term solution to this with a security mechanism in Europe. And, I mean, to bring China back into the equation, that was explicitly endorsed by the Chinese in the 4 February joint statement hmm. when Beijing said, you know, we, we, uh, we support or approve, I can't remember, but endorse the proposal that Moscow has had on the table for some time for a restructuring of the European security mechanism as an alternative to NATO expansion up to the Russian border. Paul, so what do you think China would say about this Russia-China alignment and both the ideological, the authoritarianism factor to it and also the geopolitical alignment that basically presents the U.S. with, uh, with potentially the largest geostrategic threat? The, actually, that's a really good question. The, uh, I think he would be a critic of the formulation that's prevailing now that, this, that you know, the Russia and China are part uh, of an autocratic alliance uh, against democracy. Uh, I think he was very skeptical of an ideological formulation of things. I mean, he was your, you know, hyper-classical realist, so he would be critical of that. Uh, but actually, since, since you mentioned that, you reminded me, uh, just a, a week or so ago, John Gaddis, Kennan's biographer, mm -hmm. uh, republished an article that he had written in the late 1990s uh, in which he had suggested that NATO enlargement might be a catalyst for a closer alignment between Moscow and Beijing, wow. and and I think that uh, I think that Kennan would certainly have endorsed that idea at the time and would repeat it now. Evan Feigenbaum wrote the same thing in something he published in the year two thousand, I believe. Uh, he's they're not alone. I mean, I think a lot of people recognize that. I mean, this is after Kosovo, uh, and the alignment I think was already. You know, the, the burgeoning alignment was, was already pretty clear. The writing was on the wall. A lot of people warned about that. Well, thank you both. That was just really such a fantastically interesting conversation. And I, I, I know I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did too. And I really I can't wait to get this show out. Let's move on to, to recommendations. First, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like the work that we're doing with the podcast, the very best thing that you can do to support what we're doing is to subscribe to the newly designed China Access Newsletter. Our daily newsletter comes out Monday through Friday, and it's a fantastic roundup of, of the news from hundreds of different news sources, everything you need to know about what's happening in China, uh, written by our, our crack team under Jeremy Goldcorn. All right, uh, so do help us out. Let's move on to recommendations, and let's begin with you, Yin. What do you have for us? 
So, so I'm I'm really diving into the Chinese policy discourse on Russia, and I found it to be a fascinating field of、uh, of of tremendous insights、hmm. that are normally not known to the English language、uh, audience, or because well, what is the chance of us reading say a hundred Chinese academic papers on their relationship with Russia, right? right? But I found that. There's one particular author, Feng Yujun, who was the vice president of、uh, Kicker China、mm-hmm. Institute of Contemporary International Relations. So he has a trio of three,、uh, basically three books, one series on China-Russia relations, basically called the、um, the Great Game in the in the Eurasia continent.、Oh, wow. And I found it to be perhaps the most eloquent and insightful Chinese analysis of China's relationship with Russia. Why is Russia a problem, and why China's interest is fundamentally misaligned from Russia? So it's a it's a it's a really fantastic book that I I recommend. I remember you made reference to Feng's work in the piece that you wrote for、uh, for War on the Rocks. I think. It was, I believe, it was in that one. Yes, I, I, I read basically everything he has on,、um, at least for in the public arena, and、uh, especially his analysis of why China is why China and Russia are not aligned as we as we think it is because there are limited factors driving these two together, but there are basically infinite factors driving them apart. Right. Really amazing.、Uh, I, I would, yeah, I'll try to pick up a copy of that in Chinese.、Uh, It'll take me a while to get through, but <laughs> thanks, Paul. What do you have for us?、Uh, well, I'm going to cheat and give you two. Oh, great! No, we'll love to.、Uh, only because I had one in mind, but then、uh, just last night I finished a, a new book, which I think is really seminal. It's it's called, it's by Mary Surratt,、mm-hmm, mm-hmm. historian, and it's entitled "Not One Inch: America, Russia,、right. and the Making of Post Cold War Stalemate."、Uh, and it's basically a history of. The NATO enlargement concept over the course of the 1990s, and it ends with the accession to power of Putin.、Ah. I, I just think it's incredibly important. I mean, maybe just as my bias as a historian to understand the pre-Putin history of the Ukraine issue and U.S.-Russia relations, and and, and this book is the definitive、uh, introduction to that. The, the other book I wanted to mention,、uh, really, I had in mind first, and this will come out of left field for you. Uh, it's a book by another historian friend of mine who teaches at Boston College, Charles Gallagher, and it's called "Nazis of Copley Square." Huh?、Uh, and it's a it's a it's a it's about an organization you've never heard of, the Christian Front,、uh, and it's just a fascinating little book about how a conservative, Christian, anti-communist, anti-Semitic American organization in the in, on the eve of World War II became a tool of Nazi propaganda. Is this Father Coughlin stuff? Kind of Father Kaplan was a, was a player, but there were specific organizations that were inspired by him, and even emerged a paramilitary component to it. Wow! But the interesting part of the story that、uh, that Charlie focused on is、uh, the, 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 how a, how a Nazi spy working out of the German consulate at Beacon Hall、uh, on Beacon Hill in Boston started manipulating this organization and scoring points for the Nazis. And how this was, you know, gradually exposed and, and shut down. But it's a really fascinating little book, and I think I, I only mention it because it really reson- resonates with the consequences today of what nativism and hypernationalism, hyperpatriotism can、uh, can generate, and how foreign actors manipulate public opinion in the United States. And we've seen examples of that. Yeah, we sure have. But this was kind of a a pre-social media example of this, which is really really interesting. The Nazis of Copley Square. Thank you. That's an excellent recommendation. I'm going to pick that up.
Okay, so my recommendation is actually very on topic, uh, not specifically, I mean, it's a very China topic recommendation, and that is Kevin Rudd's new book, The Avoidable War, uh, which is really excellent. I've only gotten through the first two chapters and the introduction, but the introduction is is really, uh, the, the those three chapters, the introduction and the first two are fantastic. Uh, he frames the issues really, really well. He does a great potted history of the relationship between China and the United States that really doesn't leave anything out. And he he's very careful to, to present in a kind of dispassionate way the perspectives of both Beijing and Washington on this and, and you know, why they are so un, unrecon, irreconcilable in so many ways. Uh, but it's 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 great, you know his his own deep knowledge of it and his own sort of perspective, just as a, a person from a third part party who, of course, as we know, was both foreign minister and then prime minister twice of of Australia. So it's it's just a it's a great book, and I really look forward to talking to Kevin about it. Uh, the middle chapters, it looks like uh, he talks about his idea of Xi Jinping's worldview, the sort of 10 concentric rings. And he's laid that. I don't think there were quite 10. I think there were like only eight or nine <laughs> when when we talked back, I think it was in 2017 or 2018, uh, when he was clearly already working on this book. Uh, and he, he lays out that idea uh, very, very clearly. So I'm getting through the book hopefully this weekend and we'll, uh, if all goes well, talk to him next week for, for this show. But I, I highly recommend it. It's very readable, and he's good. It's it's a book with no footnotes, with no bibliography in it. It's that's good. I think yeah, no, I think it, it's great. It really makes it just a very very readable book. I uh, an essay. Yeah, it's it's a prolonged essay. It's a, a good nice long essay. And um, Kevin, you know, I've always really enjoyed enjoyed speaking with him. He's he's fantastic. And so are both of you. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank it was you. just great. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah. Uh, thank you. It was a great discussion, great questions, and great comments. Thank you both. <laughs> no, and especially to be here with Yun. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree with Yun because I've always found myself on, on thin ice when I don't. <laughs> no way. I can see no that. Way. She is a formidable mind. No. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com and tell us how we're doing. Or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.